you would, please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we will be looking at verses 13 through 21. title of our sermon today is The Best Way to Die, Heavenly Minded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee, humble, dependent, needy, Lord, feed us with the bread of life, thy Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is to know thee, O Father, and to know the one whom thou hast sent, even Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, give us a greater knowledge of thee, not just in our head, but in our experience, in our heart. Holy Spirit, please guide And guard these thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, from error, from Satan. That the good word might not be taken from the good ground, but would bring increase. O God, we need thee. We need thee. Help this, thy unprofitable servant, to preach thy word, to have logic on fire, to accurately set before myself and these others, these thy children, thy son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, please apply the word to us. Help us, O God. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Move upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation, we think little upon death. Thus, we think little about eternity. For death is but the door through which we walk into eternity through which we walk into our eternal dwelling. Whether it's in the church or in our modern culture, the subject of death, death, the grave, is but little respected, little dwelt upon, little thought about. Strange, is it not, that death is so little thought about? Since this earthly pilgrimage that all men Walk is so brief, and eternity is so long. Yet, the unbeliever, specifically, desires only to have more of earth, more of the temporal. For him, earth must increase. Earthly pleasure, earthly enjoyments 
Earthly activity must increase, and eternity must decrease. As citizens of a better country, that is, an heavenly one, we would do well as Christians to think often of our death. The divines, our Puritan divines, recommended nightly. You should end your night thinking about death before you go to sleep. Your own death. The weight of eternity. That's your final end, is death. Making death, our death, a common meditation as Christians will hedge up our path from a multitude of dangers. How? The time wasted, wasted on entertainments, amusement, TV, video games, movies, trashy books, internet browsing, those things that are wasted moments. The time that's wasted on those things, any other earthly niceties, would seem all the more repugnant to us who have our minds frequently set on that hour in which we shall have to give an account to the great God and judge over all who has given us any time that we have for how we used his time, how we used the moments he gave us. How we used this life. The subject of death brought often before our minds would also keep us from a great number of sins, would it not? A great number of sins that we would not like to be found busied in if it were our last hour. How sad, therefore, when we, as citizens, of an heavenly country and those who ought to be the most conscious about improving every moment to the furtherance of God's glory and Christ's kingdom, how sad it is when we are found consuming our time, crowding our hearts and piddling away our energy and our resources on the delicacies of the world. How sad indeed. Dear Christian. Such should not be your case. Yet, how often indeed it is. To die best, we must live best. And to live best, we must live with our whole mind, heart, soul, strength, yea, our whole time, our whole energies set on Christ. The one who demands nothing less, Jesus Christ demands nothing less from us than that we die daily to ourselves, that we take up our cross and follow him. You want to know what it takes to be a Christian? That. Sacrifice everything. Die to self completely. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. That's the call. Do we meet that call? Of course not. But that's the call. <clears throat> the best way to both live and die is to do so heavenly minded. Heavenly minded. 
And what is this than to be Christ-minded, Christ-centered, nay, Christ-enthralled? You want to see this world turn around? You want to see this country turn around? You want to see revival? You want people to be passionate about Jesus Christ? You must be passionate. They can't be passionate lest you're passionate. Period. As we said last week, one of the only certainties we have is death. Is death. Dear believer, dear friend, this may be the last sermon you hear. Nay, the last sentence you hear. You may die in your chair. With what mind, with what heart, with what soul state would you be meeting death with if it were your last sermon? If it were your last sentence? Could it be said of you that you died jealous for Christ and his glory? Or, God forbid, that you were anxious for this world's cares? Dost thou tell thyself, dear believer, as does the worldling, to take thy knees and enjoy this world to the full? Or canst thou say, I am anxious that I may live best to God in Christ, that I may die best unto him? Only thou canst answer such a question. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Jesus preaching the sermon. A great multitude is brought to him. Check out verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode upon one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, and then he preached a sermon, addressing first his disciples. After, after a few words, we see in verse 13, And one of the company, one of the people who was there gathered, said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, now addressing everybody, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not and the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This I will do. I will put down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Three points in our text this afternoon. First, 
The temporally centered mind observed. The temporally centered mind observed. We'll notice some things about it. Secondly, the temporally centered mind rebuked. And third, a few exhortations to heavenly mindedness. First, the temporally centered mind observed. The Christian is characterized by looking not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.18. The unbeliever is the opposite of this. Even when standing before eternal realities, his mind is set on temporal things. He lives in this world and for this world. Notice verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So this is a man who's in that great innumerable multitude listening to Jesus' sermon among Jesus' followers. And he is here standing before Jesus, even coming to him. He has his ear. He has an audience with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has heard this same powerful sermon that everyone just heard. A sermon from the very word of God himself. A sermon with such sublime truths as we see in verses 4 through 9. Let's read them. This is Jesus. And he says, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. Temporal. And after that have no more they can do. Eternal. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? Basically nothing. And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye have more value than many sparrows. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Those are heavy words. Those are heavy words. Words that placed all who heard them before the stark reality of eternity. Yet, what is this man's concern? That he might obtain the best and most easy life here and now. He even tries to enlist Jesus into the procuring of more temporal ease. He's twisting the law here and he's trying to get Jesus to break the law with him. It's likely he was the youngest of two brothers. The older brother gets double inheritance And he's saying, make my brother, against the law of Moses, share the inheritance with me, his his portion. So we have equal. Jesus, although Jesus is a judge, the judge, although he is a king, the king, 
Yet he takes here his usual role, not of king or judge, but as physician. As physician. He does not judge in the matter. He does not make a ruling on the matter. Rather, he diagnoses the heart. Verses 14 and 15. And he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That's where he aimed, the heart. He could have easily said, well, the law of Moses states this and you're trying to go against it. No, it cuts right to the chase, the point that matters, the root. You are covetous. The man's true issue, the man's true concern should have been not how much worldly riches he should have, but that he had a sinful motive flowing from a sinful heart of covetousness. Sinful motive was, trying, was, was causing him to want to do a sinful deed. And that sinful motive was flowing out of a sinful heart of covetousness. He was desirous of that which the God of providence had not allotted him in this life. His lot was to be the second brother and to get less inheritance. Yet he was covetous and wanted to flip that reality. He was anxious for more of earth rather than if Christ would confess his name before angels, as we had just read. That was what he had just heard. How can I get more stuff for this temporal plane that I'm passing through at breakneck speed? Not, how can I ensure that Christ will confess me before the angels? Now, dear congregation, from this, let us learn to not constantly bring before Christ matters of earthly contentment. With earthly contentment. What do I mean by that? Well, the prayer closets of many a Christian are lined with lists of temporally minded please let me haves. They're lined with they're lined with please let me haves. Instead of please increase, O Lord, my state of grace. Many of their prayers read, Please increase my estate. But Jesus wisely offers the corrective to such unbalanced prayer. He says, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now at this church, we hate... The prosperity gospel. That false gospel that teaches that if you serve God, if you worship Jesus, you'll have health, wealth, prosperity, opportunity, breakthroughs, happy life. Yet, as sinful men, all of us, who are laid open to all the temptations that are common to all men, I wonder how many of our hearts our thoughts and our prayers betray this professed hatred of the prosperity gospel. Like the rich young ruler 
We go away from God's word sad, our countenance fallen, and our minds repeating the refrain, If only, if only, if only I had such and such worldly enjoyment, then I would be content and could serve God more fully. If only I were married. If only I had a car. If only I had that house I wanted. If only I had that job I wanted. If only I had children. If only I had this or that. Then, should I be happy and content? And then I should be able to serve God more fully. Not being anxious about those things that I don't have. But how many times, dear congregation, must we set our hopes on some worldly, temporal blessing, promising ourselves great ease and more freedom in religious duties, only to, upon receiving them and seeing their inability to satisfy our covetousness, how long must we, must we go on doing that before we see the emptiness and the vanity of such thinking? How many times before we believe that our life does not consist in the things which we possess, but in Christ Jesus alone, whom the Apostle Paul says is our life. Colossians 3, verse 4. Notice also that the man is standing before Christ. Standing before Christ, the author of life, the one who alone can perfectly declare the invisible God. He could have asked him anything, anything, to have Christ before you to explain any spiritual knot. He could have asked Jesus to expand upon the great eternal truths he had just heard. But he inquires about a sinful matter, a love for filthy lucre. That's what he's concerned about. This teaches us that we mustn't consider ourselves safe simply because we attend upon the means of grace. Don't give yourself a pat on the back and check it off, and you're good to go. Notice that this man was at the sermon, but his heart was set on his covetousness. We must open our Bibles, true. We must enter our closets on our knees. And prayer. We must attend the sermon, but we must also examine our hearts in the mirror of God's Word. Have we come, dear congregation, to the holy place only to obtain a better earthly standing? Have we come with hearts weighed down with cares for temporal needs? If that's the case, then we should not suppose that we are seeking God aright. Now, a more frequent meditation upon our grave will keep us from many foolish desires and many misguided prayers. It will stop us in our tracks, dear believer, and help us see that we take no thing and no person with us through death's door. Thou shalt enter death's door naked and alone, carrying nothing with thee. You shall enter alone and with no possessions into eternity. 
for your personal reckoning before God's judgment seat. It's just the truth. If our life, according to Jesus, consists not in those things that we possess, therefore, then, our life must consist in Christ. Thus, we should live accordingly. And this argument that I just laid out is the exact route that Jesus himself takes. Which brings us to our second point. Second, the temporally centered mind rebuked. To counter the man's covetousness, Jesus sets him a thinking on death. He tells the parable of the rich man. We'll read it again. Verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Notice, the man had more earthly abundance than he knew what to do with. I have no room where to bestow my fruits. What shall I do? But he was temporally minded. He was temporally minded. The Christ, or heaven-centered mind, would say something like this, possibly. I have filled up all my storage with my riches, my goods. I have no need or use of any more. I shall now give all of my further proceeds to those in need, since I have no more room. I have that which is necessary for me and more, but still God blesseth me and blesseth me with increase. So I shall give it to my brethren that I might execute God's will for my riches. That's something the Christ-centered, eternally-centered, heavenly-centered mind might say. But is this what the man did in the parable? No. He had, but he wanted more. Verse 18. This I will do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I need more. He finds all of his security, all of his joy in them. They are the comfort of his soul. Verse 19, I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He was merry because he had much good, and much good was still coming in. Many goods piling upon piles. Now, as I think about the condition of those in this congregation, I see very few needs, but many wants. Not that all wants are bad in and of themselves. That's not what I'm saying. My point is this. In this congregation, as I look around, we have no room to even store. To even store 
all the temporal blessings that God has given us. We are full. Nay, we are spoiled. And praise the triune God for this. It's a great thing indeed. What a gracious and loving God who hath taken such care of thee and me. But let us be mindful that our blessings do not become a snare to us. That they do not rise up and attack us from behind. That we do not find our hope in them. And that we use them to better serve and glorify God. All of these temporal blessings that we have been spoiled with. For that is why he gave them to us for a time. To steward them. All of these blessings that we enjoy, dear congregation, that we have been blessed with, are borrowed. Are borrowed. Notice, the temporally centered man is then met with the reality of the grave. His own grave. Verse 20. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Oh, the contrast we see there between God's words and the rich man's words. His things were borrowed. His things were borrowed. Now, no one likes someone who gives a gift and then takes it back from humans. But God does just that because he lets us borrow things. And we are to steward them. Notice that these riches were given to the man. And notice and think about how great is the usefulness of riches in the hands of God. And how useless are riches and blessings in the hand of a miser. The hands of a covetous, worldly-minded man. God gives and God takes away at his own pleasure and for his own purposes. How much this teaches us to never trust in uncertain riches, as Paul says in 1 Timothy six seventeen. Dear believer, hear me now. If it could be told thee that even this month thy soul would be required of thee, that thou shouldst die in a month's time, what wouldst thou do with thy time, thy goods, and thy soul? How wouldst thou prepare, dear believer, for thy death? What wouldst thou do with thine riches? Wouldst thou go away sad into Christ's presence? Or joyfully, with all things, all thy worldly things set in order? We see that little good is done by focusing on and living for temporal realities. Now for our next and final point. Third, some exhortations to heavenly mindedness. Verse 21, Christ concludes and applies the parable. It says, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This verse should govern our thoughts as Christians frequently. 
Richness in God, being rich in God, is nothing other than dwelling upon eternity and living in light of it. Which is nothing other than dwelling upon Christ and our Father which is in heaven. John 17, 3. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, says, This is eternal life, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. Now, a few particulars on heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness acquaints us with our need for Christ, dwelling upon eternal realities. In Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 5, we read this. This is Isaiah's vision before he's sent out as a prophet. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Then verse 5, what is his response? Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It acquaints us with our need for Christ. The more vision we have of heavenly things, of Christ, for this is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, as Jesus himself tells us in the book of John. This is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. The more we see of Jesus, the eternal realities that are before us, the glories of the Lord Jesus, the more we will see our need of him, because the contrast will become clearer and clearer and clearer between God, who is holiness, Jesus Christ, who is the Holy Lord of all, and ourselves. We will see that there is nothing in man, nothing in ourselves, that as Jesus says in John fifteen five, we can do nothing apart from him. But if we remain in him, we shall bear much fruit. It shows us our need of Jesus Christ, being spiritually minded. Next, heavenly mindedness serves as a motive for sanctification. A motive for sanctification. We see this in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. The Apostle Paul says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Then here is sanctification. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil conspicuousness, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then jump down to verse 10. So, Part 1 of sanctification is putting to death sinful tendencies. Part 2, verse 10, And put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So walking in the Spirit, living by the power of Christ, hating sin and putting sin to death, and loving holiness, and walking therein by the power of the Holy Spirit. So heavenly-mindedness, thinking more often, setting our minds on the things above, not on things on earth, where Christ is, who is our life, doing that motivates us to, sanctif- to sanctification, to mortification and vivification, to putting to death sin 
and living unto God. Now, people think that is extreme. But again, remember at the beginning of the sermon. Here's what Christ requires of you. Everything. You may have nothing. Nothing. But our Lord is good. And everything that you would ever want or desire, He will give you anyway. Because it will be Him. So people think it's extreme to just have your mind constantly set on heaven, constantly set on Christ, constantly thinking about everything in terms of Christianity. And that's where you see the contrast in so many people's thinking nowadays, in our thinking nowadays. We've all struggled with this. Where we ask, how much can I get away with as a Christian? It's not sinful in and of itself to have a drink. How much may I drink? How drunk can I get? Or how close? How much time may I waste? What is permissible? How many movies can I watch? How much time can I piddle away before it's wrong? That's the wrong question. That's earthly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness says, I want to give every moment to Jesus Christ because it is my greatest joy. What is your chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him. Larger catechism adds fully forever. That's not extreme. It's just the basics of Christianity. It's our mind that's wrong. It's not extreme. When it becomes extreme or legalism is when you try to push people to do it out of motivations of the flesh rather than the motivations of the spirit. They have to set their mind on the spirit. They have to set their mind on the heavenly realities, eternity, Jesus Christ. Two scenarios. A person is brought to see that in and of itself, not sinful to play the board game they're playing, read the novel they're reading, whatever. There's nothing sinful in that thing specifically itself. It's kind of a neutral thing. But they're brought to see as they seek God more and more that it's a waste of their time and they want to serve God rather than play that video game or watch that TV or whatever. They're brought to see it because of their love for Jesus Christ and through sanctification. Then in that scenario, they go and tell others who have not truly come to Christ and experienced that yet. They're Christian, but they don't really see it that way. And you say, hey man, you're wasting your time watching that, doing that. It's wrong and it's sinful. And you impose it upon them and then they obey it by obeying you. They obey your conviction rather than theirs. That's where it becomes extreme and wrong. But who wouldn't want to spend more time thinking about Jesus Christ if you're a Christian? It has to be the heart, the mind set on Jesus. That's how it's done. So, we urge you to set your mind on Jesus. To set your mind on heavenly realities. And from that will flow sanctification. It will grow in holiness. Next, heavenly mindedness comforts us in our affliction. Comforts us in our affliction. Romans 8, 18 famously says, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 
Worldly-mindedness would be, I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared, I hope, to in a few years when I have got that investment done and I have the house and the kids. That's worldly-mindedness. That's temporal-mindedness. And brings no comfort. For you might get that house and it will burn down. You might get that wife or that husband and they shall die. You might have that baby and go through the entire pregnancy and it's stillborn. And even if all of the things come to pass without some horrible destructive thing happening, like I just listed, still not going to satisfy. You'll be waiting for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. No, heavenly mindedness brings the actual comfort that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared. It's not even worth pairing up and saying which is better, which is worse. This is you know, pretty bad and this is going to be really good. No, not even worth comparing with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's real hope. And again, all these things flow in and out of each other. That will make true sanctification. Briefly, on that same point, in our afflictions, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction... He just says it's light. It's not a big deal. Which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That expounds the point even better. Eternal versus temporal. It's light. It's momentary. And actually the sufferings you're going through are working for a better eternity for you. Next. Heavenly mindedness causes us to be diligent in our loving and charitable use of our goods. 2 Corinthians 8, 8, 1 and 2. Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians who were a mess. Remember that church was a mess. Selfish, infighting, etc., etc. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do not to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. We know all about the grace that's been bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of of their liberality. There's other places in the New Testament where he talks about the churches that are storing up, providing for the other churches, providing for uh, Paul and his ministry. But he's saying that their trial of great affliction, even when they were going through horrible affliction, their joy, even in their deep poverty, abounded unto the riches of their liberality. The grace of God. They had their minds set on the things of God. And thus... They felt free to give even out of their own poverty for the needs of the church. So heavenly mindedness alone can do something like that. If you're constantly thinking about your barns and if they're full and I need to fill them up more and build more barns, you're not going to give to the poor or the needy or the church or the cause of Christ. Next, it motivates us unto duty. Unto duty. To living for Christ, living for God. Heavenly, mindus, heavenly mindedness motivates us unto duty. Isaiah 6, again, verse 8. So after he sees this vision, realizes he's so sinful, and then his need of, his need of Christ, then the angel touches his lip off the altar. He's redeemed, his sin is done away with. What does he say in verse 8? The Lord says, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. So heavenly mindedness, again the vision he saw of God, the Lord Jesus on the throne, the seraphim, 
flying around him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That vision caused him when the Lord said, who shall go? To say, here am I, send me. As well as 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's laying out the difference between eternal hope, the eternal dwelling we shall be in, and this momentary earthly dwelling that we live in. And then verse 9 and 10, he says, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So the heavenly mindedness of knowing that his heavenly dwelling would be better caused the Corinthian church and all true Christians to then labor, to go out and work for Christ. Because we know that we will have to give an account for how we used our time. Lastly, it causes the sinner... Heavenly mindedness causes the sinner to flee from the wrath to come, as John the Baptist says in Luke 3, 7. What does Jesus come preaching in the wilderness saying in Mark? We preached through this. Mark 1, 15. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Kingdom of God is interchangeable with kingdom of heaven. They're the same throughout the gospels. So Jesus' first message, what he came preaching first, was that the time is fulfilled. Now, the kingdom of God in its full reality, the kingdom of heaven in its full declaration in myself is among you. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. So, the eternal realities, heavenly mindedness, being set before sinners will bring them to Jesus Christ caused them to flee from the wrath to come. That's why often when you're evangelizing, and a lot of people do this, and I think it's very effective, depending, you ask people, if you were to die tonight, are you confident you'd be in heaven? I know it's really done and sometimes becomes cheesy almost, but it's not. It's true. Because people don't think about death. I don't want to think about that. That's not nice. Christians should think about death all the time. I try to think about death, my death, as often as possible. Almost every night when I'm going to sleep, I think about death. That I shall soon give an account for my life. And it just helps me think about how fleeting this present life is. And therefore, to live it for Christ and his people and his cause. So, laying before a sinner the reality of his death and that he is not prepared for heaven. He is not prepared to meet God and he needs Jesus Christ. is very profitable. In conclusion, let us then, dear congregation, labor to cultivate a heavenly mindset. We will be of so much more use, dear congregation, to both God and man if we are heavenly minded. You've heard that old silly saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you do no earthly good. False. The more heavenly minded you are, 
the more earthly good you do. Spurgeon often said this, If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. Wonderful. Wonderful indeed. The heavenly mindset is summed up in those words of John the Baptist in John 3.30. He, being Christ, must increase, and I must decrease. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before Thee. Lord, I lift up this, I lift up this offering to Thee, whatever it was. Please use it. Please use it for thy glory and increase thy people's faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.